right, well, good morning. Oh, man. Some of you are caffeinated. This is, oh, man, this is good. My name's Dave, if we haven't met. Uh, I'm so glad that you're here with us. And uh, we're going to be diving into a story this morning. Uh, It's literally about fire and brimstone. And if you know anything about me, that's kind of my vibe. Uh, So this is just a very strange story. It's the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. We're going to dive into it. Uh, It's there, and we have a note sheet, which has some kind of a long passage of Scripture. If you'd like, you can also turn in your Bibles to Genesis 18 or your flat screen device to Genesis 18. We're going to go through Genesis 18, 19. This is is my favorite type of of sermon. We just kind of march through a story, and then I kind of pause and give some comments. It's fun. And uh, this is uh, what in old Looney Tunes, anybody remember Looney Tunes? Anybody? Yeah, remember the bad time stories? Uh, that's, that's kind of what it was. It's like, it's not, not, this is not a bedtime story. This is, uh, okay. So this is, uh, in, in many ways, this is a really unfun story, but it's also, I think if, as, as we get through this, you're going to see it's actually incredibly beautiful. And it says so much about God and about us. And so if we just pay attention, um, I think it can really take, some, take us somewhere. So here it is. It's uh, in Genesis 18. Um, we talked about this a little bit last week, but we're going to get right into it. Uh, this is now this moment. Uh, Abraham is hanging out outside of his tent where he is settled up on the hills. And something happens. This is the fifth or sixth time, I forget which one it is, that God shows up to Abraham. Now, this has happened multiple times. You remember, we're marching through this. God keeps showing up in the, I mean, like literally showing up in the life of Abraham. This is like the fifth or sixth time this is happening. And so this is uh, right there in Genesis 18. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance of his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw him, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. Now, as the story goes in, you can see what is Abraham's posture toward God when he shows up. Now, my son was like, well, how did he know it was God? I'm like, well, this is the fifth or sixth time God showed up. I think you start recognizing it, right? He's like, oh, yeah, good point. I was like, yeah. So what happens is Abraham hurries out to meet them, right? And then he, he brings them into his tent, right? This is, this is a symbol in the ancient world of incredible hospitality. This is like your family. Do you know what I mean? This is like, you're with me. Come on in. And then he, he says to his wife, hey, uh, you know, l- let's get the flour out. He says, get three sias of flour, Sarah. And you're like, wow, three whole sias. Three whole sias of flour. And you're like, what's a sia? I see a lot of flour. That's all I know. And so you look at the way to measure, that's 60 pounds of flour. It's a lot of bread. And then he says, kill the fattened calf and get some cheese curds. And you're like, wow, this is veal parmesan. This is, sounds, it's Olive Garden. When you're here, you're family. And it's <laughs> delicious. And he makes, do you see what's going on here? What's Abraham's response to when God shows up at his doorstep, right? Hey, come on in. Later on, God would show up at humanity's doorstep in the form of Jesus. Any room? Nah. Right? Do you see? Anyway, that's, that's extra. We're not there in the story yet. That's Christmas. You're like, hey, it's not even, it's barely Halloween. So we go in. And so what happens is he, this is incredible hospitality. This is incredible hospitality. And that's a symbol. When you, when you offer that kind of hospitality, it's a symbol of what's going on in your heart, how you view that person. Does that make sense? And this is Abraham's posture. 
And then they have this great meal. Everything happens. There's more to the story. But then uh, God gets up and he gets to leave. And it says this, when the men got up to leave, this is God and his two bodyguards. I don't know what's going on. Two other angels that are with God. When the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. And then the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? This is incredible to me. This is a rhetorical question. God's basically saying, hey, boy, should I share my business with this human, with my friend Abraham? And God is about to share his business with Abraham. Let's just pause it for a second. That's incredible that the creator of the entire universe is like, I'm about to tell a human what I'm about that's nuts. And then Abraham's like there and he's like, well, what, 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 what are you about? And we find out what he's about. And then God says, and here's the reason why God shares this with Abraham. Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. We've talked about this before, right? For I have chosen him that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord, to keep my way by doing what is right and what is just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he's promised him. So the reason that God says, I'm about to share my business with Abraham, is because Abraham is a man who lives the way that God wants him to live. He practices the way of the Lord. And these two words, doing what is right and just, we looked at this last week, siddika and mishpat. These are my two favorite words in the Hebrew language, siddika and mishpat. Say it, siddika, mishpat. You just spoke Hebrew this Sunday morning. It's amazing. Siddiqui and Mishpat are justice and righteousness. And it's this beautiful picture of living in harmony with God and with others. And that's Siddiqui living with, in harmony with God and others. And then when that breaks, Mishpat putting it back right. And so this is the lesson. This is the third lesson that we've been talking about in the life of Abraham. This has been a field guide. We've spent multiple weeks going through. And this is the lesson that we are people who seek Siddiqui Mishpat, right? But I can't put that because that, nobody understands that. We seek justice, right? We, we do what's right. We love what's right. And we set things right because that's Siddiqui Mishpat. And God says, I'm about to share my business with Abraham because he's a man who practices Siddiqui Mishpat. He does what's right and just. He has my ethical character. In a world full of violence and oppression and injustice, God wants his people to be different, to be like him. And then we see what happens. Here's God's business, and it's messy. God says, the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I'll know. Now, a couple of thoughts here. My son was like, well, why does God have to go down to earth? I mean, he's omniscient. Can you just kind of see? And you see what God's doing. He's coming down to involve Abraham in his business. God can do all this without us, but he wants to involve us in it. This is incredible. This is the beginning of God entering into human history and saying, I want to partner with faithful covenant partners to do something beautiful in the world. Yeah, I could do it myself, but it's going to help and change them as they participate with me. This is incredible. This is incredible. But what's even more incredible is that God, now, now, before we go any further, this is the other thing. My, my, I, I talked through this stuff with my family. My wife's like, well, what was so bad that so- Sodom and Gomorrah did? And I think the text is obvious. They're Dodger fans. I think that that's <laughs> clearly. We're not sure. 
We're not sure. That's the hint. Um, so, look, this is a big question. Look, I can't get into that right now, uh, but we did a whole afterword on it. Um, if you don't know what the afterword is, it's our conversation after the conversation. I did a whole afterword on it. I talked to Jay and Sarah Lee. I presented my case of what I think biblically the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is. You can listen to that. It's a really fun convo. I present my case, and then they tell me if they... Um, it's like a yay or nay thing. I was like, hey, do you think I made my case well? Um, I present that. Um, I think that there's a pretty clear understanding of what's going on here. The rest of the Bible speaks about it. The story has some hints, but we don't have time to get into it. But regardless, it's bad, right? It's bad. This is bad. Something horrible is going on. An outcry has reached. Now, before we go any further, I want you to know this is so, such good news that God hears the outcry of those who are being oppressed. Isn't that such good news? Imagine a God who that falls on deaf ears. Imagine a God who people cry out in pain and in the middle of injustice and suffering, and God doesn't hear that. That's not really that great of a God. But this God hears. And not only does he hear, he comes and gets involved. He is coming to investigate. That's what's happening. He's saying, um, I'm going to get involved. He's saying to Abraham, I'm involved in this story and I get involved in a real world of real suffering. How could we ever worship a God who doesn't come and get involved in human suffering, right? Do you see what I'm saying? Now, again, fast forward, there's another time when God comes and gets involved in human suffering really personally. He suffers himself. But again, that's Christmas Back to the story. Let's talk about this word outcry. This word outcry is a charged word, all right? So the first time the word outcry happens is in the Bible when Cain and Ab- Cain kills Abel. Remember, the blood is crying out. Remember that moment? The blood cries out of the murdered brother. And then in the flood, God comes down to investigate, and he sees that the, every action and every heart and every inclination of every human is only evil all the time. It's terrible. And then in Babel, there's, this, there's this, another moment when God comes down and investigates. And then in Exodus, the word outcry is used for the Hebrew slaves who cry out against Pharaoh's oppression. And in Mosaic law, uh, this word outcry is used perhaps most viscerally. In the Mosaic law, if a woman is being sexually assaulted and she cries, the, the word for, that she cries out, that's the same word. This is a horrible word. Do you see what I'm saying? And God investigates when this happens. There's this pattern of God hearing or seeing great evil and then investigating. This is what's going on. And this is such good news. This is such good news that God sees and hears out Christ. Just, I want you to reflect on that for a moment. It's such good news, not just for the world, but for you and I. When real suffering really happens and we cry out, God hears and he gets involved. And the next thing we learn is God's not super happy about this. Uh, Well, we know this. He's just not happy about this. This is not the way humans are supposed to behave. But the third thing we find out, and this is what the rest of the story, I think, begins to show us, is that God's going to take some action. He's going to confront evil. Do you see what I'm saying? He's not going to let this stand, right? Like, what kind of parent would be if the kids are fighting, and one of them is really violent against the other one, and the parents are like, you know what? Just let them fight it out. We never really wanted both of them. (laughs) Right, do you see? What's a parent do? Hey, 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 hey! Right? Well, maybe that's just me. Okay, I don't know. Um, I just gave away. Uh, Pray for me. Uh, Parent of teenagers. Uh, So, the second thing, and this is the most important thing, is that God's really, uh, God's going to confront. He's going to confront this evil. But man, his patience Man, his patience. He is slow to anger. There's a moment when uh, Moses encounters God on the top of Mount Sinai. 
And, and God says, I'm slow to anger, abounding in compassion, right? This is so, I'm going to show you what's happening. Now, God's going to confront, but I want to show you what's happening here. So God says, I, this, this outcry is so grievous, I have to do something. Now, we've seen this story before, right? With the flood, it was so grievous. The outcry was so grievous. What did God do? He's like, I got I, I to confront it. So we, he gets rid of that virus. And then with the Tower of Babel, the humans are like, let's build a society without God. Let's get to heaven and have eternal life. It'll be great. We'll be gods. And God's like, nope, I'm going to confront that. We're going we're gonna to scatter. We're, I'm going to put an end to that. God confronts that, right? And this is the third story in evil being confronted by God. And so it's going to be bad. But, but, but God, we're learning something about God and his nature in this. And he's slow to anger. So Abraham actually speaks up. And he says, wait, 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 you're going to destroy all of Sodom and Gomorrah? Like, uh, I got family down there. I got family down there. And I, I got Lot. I got my, my nephews down there. And his family. Uh, that doesn't seem very fair. And, then, and, and so Abraham says, the men turned and went toward Sodom. But Abraham remained standing before the Lord. This, uh, in, in Hebrew, there's some legal, t- it's like he's a few good men. Like, you can't handle the truth. He just stands there and he's like, um, <clears throat> Can I make a case? So he like approaches God. And then he says, uh, will you sweep away the righteous and the wicked? Like that doesn't seem real fair, right? Does that make sense? That seems a violation of justice. And we all know this because we were in junior high and we had group projects. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, right? It's like, you're going to give us an F when only some of us deserves an F? Right? Here's, what, here's a graph I found online. I thought it was pretty funny. Here's what group projects teach me. Um, <laughs> The material, group skills, how much I hate other people, right? There's some of you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? This. So, so, so Abraham makes this case, right? Hey, is this really fair? That seems like you're throwing away some good stuff with some bad stuff. What's going on? That doesn't seem just, God. And so enters in this incredible conversation where Abraham approaches God himself delicately. You're going to see just how delicately and respectfully he approaches him, but he approaches God. And this is what happens. This is an incredible thing that happens. I'm just going to go through it. It's multiple slides, and I had to number them because I couldn't keep them straight. Um, so he says, look, look, look at this. Um, it's this little bit of a, a conversation. What if there's 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous people? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do what's right? So the Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I'll spare the whole place for their sake. And Abraham's like, wow, 50 people. Okay. Then Abraham spoke up. Now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes. Do you see what Abraham's doing here? He's recognizing his place. He's speaking to God, but doing it in a way where he recognizes his place. Does that make sense? What if the number of the righteous is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city for the lack of five people? If I find 45, God said, doing the math in his head, I will not destroy it. God can do all sorts of math in his head because he invented numbers. Once again, he spoke to him, what if, on, uh, what if only 40 are found? He said, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. And then Abraham said, may the Lord not be angry. Let me speak. Uh, do you see, again, do you see the humility here, right? 
What if only uh, 30 can be found? I won't do it for, if I find 30 there. Abraham said, now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what, what if only 20 can be found there? He said, for the sake of 20, I won't destroy it. See what's going on here, right? And then, and then he said, may the Lord not be angry. Let me speak just once more. What, what if there are only t- t- 10, 10, 10 can be found there? He answered, for the sake of 10, I won't destroy it. And then Abraham quits. He's like, all right, listen, I'm not going to push my luck, right? No whammies, no whammies, big bucks. I'm sticking, right? I'm staying on number 10, right? A couple of things I want to point out here. First of all, um, pretty exceptional convo, right? A couple of things I want to point out. Number one. Uh, in literature, in storytelling, there's something called the rule of three. You've heard this, right? Uh, for maximum memory, there's always the rule of three, right? Uh, Goldilocks and the, right, uh, the blank Billy Goat's Gruff, right? Uh, uh, the, the, the big bad wolf and the three little pigs, right? Do you see? And, and even in famous speeches, uh, Gettysburg Address, Abraham Lincoln, um, uses this, by the people, for the people, love the people, right? There's this, there's this repetition. Jesus uses three, the, the story of the Samaritan. There's often, the rule of three is this way to keep it in our head, that something is important, it's a, it's a storytelling device. Um, the author here, Moses, in, in this story, he doesn't use the rule of three. He uses the rule of three twice. It's one, two, three, one, two, three, right? He, he, he's trying to say something. Uh, you see how repetitious this is, right? It's almost comical. That's really important. Something is happening here. We are supposed to pay attention to it. But then the second thing I want to call your attention to is that um, th- th- some people say, well, this is um, Abraham bartering or bargaining with God, like in a Middle Eastern way. Uh, I'd, like you to, I'd like to point out, this is really bad bartering, Right, what's bar- bartering is if I say, oh, hey, hey, look, that's a vintage Star Wars figure. That's incredible. Uh, how much is it? And somebody says, it's $50. Bartering says, I'll give you 40. And then what does the other person say? No, 45, right? There's a back and forth. Is there any, there's, there, is there any back and forth in this convo? Moses, uh, Abraham's like, hey, what if you find 45? And God's like, fine. He's like, 40, fine. 30, fine. 20, fine. 10, fine. God is terrible at bartering. <laughs> He's horrible at it. Do you see? So what must that mean? That God actually is eager to delay destruction, just like Abraham is. Abraham and God have the same heart here. God's not saying, oh, look, you said 50, uh, 47. God doesn't go back and forth. He just keeps lowering the number. Now, what's interesting is Abraham quits. We'll get back to that in a bit. But the point is that Abraham is trying to say and show, in this story, we're saying that Abraham and God have the same heart. Like, keep lowering the number. Does God actively want to destroy Sodom? He's like, listen, even if I find 10, I don't care. Seriously, I got this fire and sulfur, and I just cannot wait to rain it down. Do you see? This is what's going on here. I put it like this in the book. Despite their clear wickedness, it seems clear that Abraham doesn't want to see the people of Sodom die and be lost forever. Why? He doesn't want to see the people of Sodom die and be lost forever. I just quoted myself in my own sermon. That's so meta. (laughs) That's crazy. That's crazy levels of nuts. I just quoted myself. Um, Okay, so we get into that. So here, here, but now we have to ask the question, like, what's actually going on here? 
And there's this moment, and I want to draw your attention to it. Why did Abraham stop at 10? And we don't know exactly, but we think we know. And that's because Abraham knows at least he's got some family down in there. He's got some people who are his kin. Remember, what does God say is Abraham's beautiful trait? That he teaches his family and household and children to practice the way of the Lord, to do Siddiquah and Mishpat, right? So he's got some family down there. So if he's got some family down there and he lowers it down to 10, he's trying to figure out maybe Lot's family and Lot's family alone is enough to stave off the utter destruction of this whole city. Now, at this point, our American minds start to break a little bit because we're, we, we, we don't live in a communal society. In the ancient world, this is, life was far more communal. And it's difficult for us to get into that because we're not communal. Uh, you don't take my lawnmower. You just don't it would borrow it. I've got my lawnmower. You've got your lawnmower. We all have lawnmowers. It's stupid. Actually, kind of, if you think about it, we should just borrow it and have one on the street. But the point is, in the ancient world, it's very communal. So, for example, let's say that you guys are a whole household or a tribe, and you guys are a whole household and a tribe. And let's say you go over and beat him up because you're mad at him. Okay, now, then you go back to your house, you just beat him up, you're like, yeah, I beat him up. This whole place is like, no, why did you do that? These people are super mean. They're going to come back and they're going to beat us up. So you have brought dishonor and you have brought trouble upon the whole group. Do you see? And you are like, oh, let's bring it. So you're going to bring the fire back on them. Does that make sense? His actions by beating you up are not private. It's corporate. Conversely, if you go over there and broker a deal and say, listen, I know you guys are having some trouble. You can share our water. Here's some sheep. Here's some grain. It's a tough time right now. His single action can bring blessing upon both you and his house because you guys will be like, Let, don't touch them. They're our friends. Do you see what I'm saying? It's way more communal. It's way more communal. So the actions of a single person can bring destruction on an entire area or blessing. Do you see? It's far more communal. We just don't get that very much in our modern world. It's difficult to find examples of this. I guess the best example we could have is like team sports. You know, you have like an offensive tackle that's just bad all game. He has brought destruction upon his whole team. That's not an indictment of the Niners. (laughs) Or if somebody plays really well. Do you see what I'm saying? That's the closest we have, but we don't even have good analogies. But I want to talk about this because this is really, truly a story, a tale of two dudes, a tale of two people. And they're at this path, this wooded path, and they take two different paths. This is the story of Abraham and Lot. Again, the whole point of this whole story is God says, I've come to talk to Abraham because he practices the way of the Lord and he practices Siddiquah and Mishpah and he teaches his family his whole household, to follow the way of the Lord. The way of the Lord is Siddiquah Mishpat, to practice justice and righteousness. Abraham's doing it. He's pleading for the city. And then what we see in the beginning of the story in Genesis 12, right, when God shows up in Abraham's life, is that Abraham is with Lot. It says, Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Do you remember? They're together. They're together. They're the same. They're in the same family household. They're together. But then in the story, something really weird happens. They separate. They separate. And what happens is their their herders get in kind of an argument, and they have to split up the land. Abraham goes to the top of a mountain and looks out with Lot and says, which area do you want? I'll take the other one. 
And this is what it says. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the Garden of the Lord, like the Garden of Eden, like the land of Egypt. Okay, so an ancient reader, when you see Egypt, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Very bad thing. But is it a rich thing? Yes. Where, where's the Nile? Right there in Egypt, right? Where does Abraham flee when there's a famine? To Egypt, right? It's rich. But as the ancient readers would have read this, who's reading this? Moses and the people who have just been freed from deep oppression for 400 years in the land of? Is Egypt a good word here? No. Be like the land of the Dodgers. Do you see? It's evil. I'm just going to bang on that. I'm still, I'm still mad a little bit. My issue. My issue. In the direction of Zohar, this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot took for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated from each other. So Lot sees this land. He saw it. He desired it, and then he took it. Uh, we've seen that pattern, remember? And it's Egypt. Do you see the author is giving us clues? Lot leaves the family of Abraham, and then he goes into Sodom. And bad things start to happen to Lot. Now, Abraham's a little different. Abraham, there's this moment where there's a, and I can't get into this. this is, there's like so many sermons in this story. There's this moment where Abraham, um, his whole stuff gets taken by these rival tribal lords. And then Abraham goes after these tribal lords, these powerful warlords. He's like, and, and with like 300 dudes, and he gets his stuff back and he beats them. And all the other tribal warlords come together and they're like, man, how'd you do that? That was incredible. That was incredible. Come from behind victory. You must have some God with you. And he's like, I do. I have Yahweh, the creator God. And they're like, wow. And there's this one King who's like, man, that's amazing. I worship that God too. And I want to bless you. That was the King of Jerusalem, Ah, Jerusalem. But there's this other King who's like, Hey, that's great. Give me some of your stuff. And that's the King of Sodom. Hmm. And Abraham's like, I don't want any of your stuff. I don't want to have anything to do with you. So he distances himself from this. Does that make sense? So Lot goes towards Sodom. Abraham goes away for, towards Sodom. And we're seeing something happening in this story. And then, of course, you see this, this, this reality where Abraham is moving away from Sodom toward Yahweh. And he has all these experiences with Yahweh. Lot does not. And so in the middle of this, what happens is the story is pretty tragic. And it's for the sake of time, what happens is God's two angels go down to Sodom. And Lot's sitting at the gates, which means he's like an uh, like important public figure, right? Lot's got influence. He's wealthy. He's wealthy in the city of Sodom. It's made him rich. And he's there. And the city of Sodom do not behave like Abraham. They do not welcome these strangers into their home. They actually surround and they chase these men into Lot's home and they bang on the doors and they say, this is incredible. Bring out these men so that we can rape them. And you're like, what? This is nuts. And this is like sexual violence, right? This is violence. And a lot of commentators are like, see, what they're doing is they're trying to send a message to the world. You come to Sodom and try to settle down and get some stuff, get some of your stuff. This is how we treat visitors and foreigners. Don't come here. We want our stuff for our stuff. But it also reveals some deep wickedness. I mean, it's incredible, right? Deep, deep wickedness. These, this is ancient Middle Eastern hospitality. How you treat people reveals how your heart is. 
And these, the, the city mob surrounds Lot's house and says, Let's, let, give us these men. Send them out so that we can rape them. And then Lot's response shows his heart. He says, no, 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 don't do such an evil, wicked thing, gentlemen. Take my two daughters who aren't married. Just rape them instead. It's incredible, right? Do you see the depravity? And then God's like, that's enough. I have all the evidence I need. The city is wicked. It's wicked. It's got to go. It can't be a virus anymore on this world. They have committed such atrocity. I have to stand against it. He says, get out of the city. And Lot has to be dragged by some angels out of the city. And they only give one instruction. Don't look back in grief. Don't. And what does his wife do? She looks back. Do you see? They have been in Sodom for so long, experiencing such wealth, such prosperity, that something has happened. They've lost their way. Which leads us to a couple of thoughts. There's a couple options when you're living in a city that's wicked. (laughs) You can conform to the city and become wicked yourself like Lot. That's one option, right? That's called... um, not good. <laughs> Conforming is one option. Another option is you can just flee, run away, leave the city. That uh, sounds good, right? You're supposed to flee from sin, right? That makes sense. And we are supposed to flee from sin. But that's not the option that Abraham presents. Even now I hear people say, we need just to get out of this city. We need to get out of California. It's too sinful. It's too godless. We need to go to a place where there's no sin. Good luck. (laughs) Seriously, good luck. Seriously, good luck. There's no such place. And there's the third option, which Abraham makes possible, and that is you could leaven it. Leaven it. Be like yeast and do something good in that city and somehow, through God's work, transform it. Jesus, remember, he makes these, be salt and light into the world, right? In a world of darkness, be light. In a world that is decaying, be salt that's a preservative. Do you see? Do you need a lot of salt to preserve a lot of meat? Mm -mm. In fact, there's this moment. Look here. This is fun. In Matthew 13... Jesus told them another parable. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into three seahs of flour until it worked through all the dough. Now, of all the measurements Jesus could have used, of all the measurements he could have chosen, he chose his three seahs. Where, where does that show up? Do you remember? Do you remember? Abraham calls out to his wife, get three seahs. Do you see what's going on? This is a hyperlink. Jesus is too brilliant for this. And he's saying it's like a little bit of yeast that made its way into three seahs of flour. Now, I did some research. Three seahs is 60 pounds of flour, which is 210 cups of flour. 210 cups. That's this. This is 210 cups. It's a lot of flour. I'm going to ask you, how much yeast do you think it takes? According to Baker's and Rachel Ray, who I looked up, How much yeast do you think it takes to leaven 60 pounds of flour? So you go to the store and there's five five pound bags of flour. That's 12 of those. Is that right? Is that the right math? I'm an English major. Is that right? Yeah. 12 of those lined up. You pour them in. You got 60 pounds of flour. How much yeast would it take? Here's the answer. 
about nine tablespoons, nine tablespoons leaven 60 pounds of flour. So it's a little more than a half a cup. It's a half a cup plus a tablespoon, nine sixteenths. So I did the math because again, my wife and I were driving and she's like, well, what does that mean? That's a one to 373 ratio of yeast to flour, which means it does not take a lot of yeast to leaven an entire lot of flour. Does that make sense? It only takes a little bit of faithful covenant partners being in a place to leaven that place, to bring light and goodness, to bring preservation, to bring God's word, to bring his siddakah and mishpat. It takes a few courageous, faithful people. What's that mean for Santa Clara County? This is Santa Clara County. There's 1.928 million people in Santa Clara County as the 2020 census. That means in order to leaven all of Santa Clara County, if that's the flower, if that's the three seas of flower, this is how many Christians, devoted, faithful partners it would take, 5,362. That's the number of yeast that it would take according to Jesus's fun little analogy. Now, is that exact? No, but it is provocative because it doesn't take a lot of people who are faithful covenant partners who practice Siddiqah and Mishpat, justice and righteousness in a place to bring goodness and the kingdom of heaven to a place. It doesn't take much. 5,362. Which means I could be one of those and you could be one of those. But there's a tragedy in the story of Sodom and you know where this is going. And the tragedy of Sodom is that none can be found. And so the next morning, there's this beautifully, horribly poetic moment when Lot gets up early in the morning and looks from his mountain residence down into the city of Sodom and Abraham went early in the morning to the place where they had stood before the Lord and he looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah and toward the land of the valley and he looked and behold the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace the whole city's gone there are none that practice justice and righteousness there are none whose hearts are turned to the way of the Lord there are none there are none and we're left with a terrible, terrible lesson from this story. And that is, it is hopeless. It's hopeless. Human beings cannot, apparently, be faithful covenant partners with God. Lot's corrupted. Sodom's wicked. And even the righteous man in the story, Abraham, you know where the story goes. Does he practice justice and righteousness perfectly all his days? No, he does not. He is sometimes righteous, sometimes just. He is inconsistent. Now, what's the problem with that? I was thinking about this. What happens if you have a judge that's like 70% fair, 70% just? Is that just? No, it's not. What if you have a teacher that loves 70% of her teacher, or students and, and works for their benefit? Is that a good teacher? Inconsistency is the problem, is a problem, and we can never be perfectly just. And the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is that none are found. 
to be righteous. This is where humanity is going. We are not, even those of you who are deeply committed to the way of the Lord, are you 100% consistent with being committed to the way of the Lord? I'm not. Are the times when selfishness curves you inward? I know it is for me. Genesis 18 and 19 show us that justice cannot be on this earth. It cannot be achieved. Humans cannot be good enough to achieve it. There are no faithful covenant partners. We're done. Fire and destruction and wickedness is all that we will be on our own. But that's not the end of the story, is it? There's another moment in Israel's history. They have learned this lesson. They have learned this lesson. And they have become themselves as wicked as Sodom and Gomorrah. And God sends a prophet named Ezekiel who says, Jerusalem, you were supposed to be God's faithful covenant partners, and you have not been. And destruction is coming upon you because you have been just as unfaithful and just as wicked as Sodom and Gomorrah. In fact, there's this moment where Ezekiel says, she's your sister city. I mean, do you see how devastating those words would have been? But then the prophet Ezekiel says this, oh, but there's hope. Your hearts are wicked, but what if, what if, what if God did something? What if God changed, what if God changed your heart? Ezekiel 18, the prophet begins this overture of hope. Rid yourselves, he says, of all the offenses you've committed. And then he says, get a new heart and a new spirit. Then he continues on and he says, now, is that easy to, no, you can't do that. So what's going to happen? And then in one of the more beautiful passages in the entirety of scripture, Ezekiel sets the stage for something incredible. He says this, I will sprinkle, this is the Lord speaking, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you'll be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws, to follow the way of the Lord, to practice Siddiqah and Mishpat. Then you will be my people and I will be your Lord. We're going to fast forward because we have to. Jesus comes and he cleanses us on that cross. He cleanses us from all our iniquity. And then the spirit rushes out. We can have a new heart. Nicodemus says, how can a a man be new? And Jesus is like, it's like being born again. Remember that moment in John three and four. There's this moment where Jesus says, I can, I can do that. And that's what we're gonna celebrate here, communion. We live in Silicon Valley and we are very smart and we have a lot of money and there's some brilliance here that's unmatched in the rest of the world. But you know what we can't do? We can't solve the problem of injustice because the problem of injustice runs deeper than the system. It runs deeper even than our society. It runs right into our hearts. And the line of injustice runs right in here. We need King Jesus to cleanse us, to give us new hearts so that we individually and corporately can be a people 
who practice Siddhikon Mishpat. It's our only hope. It's our only hope. And what a hope it is. Because Jesus' death and his life and his resurrection ensure that it can happen for us. We have access to a new heart and a new spirit. And that's our hope. And our hope is that God will not stop the good work which he has begun in me and you and you and you and you and you and you and all of us. And we can truly be with God's spirit and with his help through the work, the atoning work of Jesus on the cross, be made clean with a new heart. In order to have the kingdom, we need our king. And we cannot do it. We are a people who need our king. And our king is our way, and our king is our salvation and our cleansing. He is the new heart, and he can give us that. We're going to take communion now. And if you'll just get ready, and if you haven't gotten it yet, there's some tables where you can grab some. But I'm just going to have us pause for a second just as God's people and just prepare ourselves for communion. We're just going to pray and just do business with God. Thanking him for both the cleansing and the changing and the possibility of hope. And the fact that he can indeed give us a new heart. Let's just pray. God, thank you for the story of Abraham. And the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, as tragic as it is, reminds us that we are all, all of humanity is lost without you. We bend toward wickedness and evil. And that's where we are. And because of that, destruction awaits us. But you are so good and so patient and so loving and so compassionate that you reach out so that none might need perish. And you send your only son. And Jesus, your sacrifice on the cross reminds us not only of our worth, but your goodness and your power to beat the powers of sin and death and to make possible the possibility of a renewed spirit, a new heart within us. Thank you for that. Amen. Abraham was a man of Siddiquan Mishpat who practiced it Sometimes, but Jesus, he's the one who practiced Siddhikon Mishpat perfectly, the way of the Lord. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread, he took the wafer, and he took it and he held it in front of his disciples and said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Whenever you are together, take and eat and do so in remembrance of me. Let's take and eat and do so in remembrance of Jesus' broken body. And in the same way, Jesus took the cup and he said, this is my blood, 
the new covenant that runs through my veins. As often as you're together, take and drink and do so in remembrance of me. Let's take and drink in remembrance of Jesus' spilt blood and the new covenant. You know, as we go from this place, just a reminder, we're going to worship here in a second for the truth that Jesus is the kind of God who puts a new spirit in us. The other week, I was looking at some of the news of the injustice in the world, and I've been as overwhelmed as you have. I've been as overwhelmed as you have. And my friend said something really interesting. He said, yeah, it looks bad, but as long as there's an empty tomb and the Holy Spirit... We'll be okay. The empty tomb is real and the Holy Spirit is here. There is hope in a world filled with injustice that God is on the move. And incredibly, he's looking for faithful covenant partners like you and I to partner with him. He's standing at our door of our tent and saying, shall I share with them my business? And the answer is yes, he is shared with us his business, to be people of justice and righteousness, to partner with him as faithful covenant partners. And in a world full of injustice and suffering, we can be different and bring healing and God's hope.